I do appreciate the invitation to come and talk today. It's always, it's always fun to do this. There's, there's a complete difference between studying something to learn it and studying something to teach it. It never fails when I put a lesson together that I start with an idea and then as I start studying for it, that idea kind of verges off into other things. And the exact same thing happened here. Today we're going to be talking about Jeconiah, the cursed king. Now, it's actually going to be towards the end of the lesson when we start talking about him, and you'll see why. <clears throat> but first, I wanted to start with a few ideas. So atheists and scientists, they tell us that the Bible is not what the Bible says it is, because atheists and scientists rely on proof. They say that there is no proof that the Bible is from God, and that there's no way for us to do that. Well... I would submit to you that the Bible is much more than a religious text. It is a complete historical record of the times before Christ, B.C., or what they call before the Common Era, B.C.E. now. If you look at any scientific research or archaeological stuff, it's B.C.E. to them. <clears throat> Nowhere in the Bible is there anything historically that is inconsistent with archaeological records that have been found. We're actually going to look at some archaeological records called the Babylonian Chronicles today. Now, the Babylonian Chronicles were the records that the Babylonian government kept, of usually of their wars and of their, even their losses, but their wins and their losses. We'll be looking at some of those that corroborate perfectly with some of the things in the Bible. And also, we want to use Jeconiah to help to disprove one of the contradictions, one of the main ones that we hear the, the two different genealogies of Jesus, the, the one listed in Matthew and the one listed as Luke, we know that they are different, and there's a reason, and we're going to look at that. But we're going to kind of get there in a, in a weird way. So before we get to Jeconiah, and this is the part that diverged from my original idea, we kind of need to talk about his father. Now, Jehoiakim was an evil king. Um, he was appointed by Pharaoh Necho II in about 608 B.C. Now, the dates can be off by one year depending on whether it was, whether the first year was year one or whether, you know, because sometimes they called year one, they started year one when he started his reign, and sometimes it was year zero, and then in the, et cetera. Anyways, bear with me there. But he was appointed by Pharaoh Necho in 608 B.C., and at this time, Judah was, they were not a very strong military nation. Uh, their trade was good and their taxes were high. And so they paid Egypt for protection from the Babylonians, from uh, all of the other invaders, the, the, what they called Arabs from the south and then the, those from the east. They paid Egypt because at this point in time, Egypt owned and controlled a lot of the area north of Jerusalem. Let me read to you here 2 Kings 23. It, it may be small. You may not be able to read it. Jehoiakim gave the silver and the gold to Pharaoh, but he taxed the land to give money <clears throat> according to the commandment of Pharaoh. He exacted the silver and the gold of the people of the land and everyone according to his taxation to give it unto Pharaoh Necho. Jehoiakim was 20 and 5 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. And then on to verse 37. And he did that which was evil, in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his fathers had done. Now that bottom statement, Jehoiakim's reign was from 608 to 598. Now that looks like 10 years when you look at it, but when you count them out, 
608, 7, 606, 605, 604, 603, 02, 01, 600, 599, 598. 11 years that he reigned. Now take a, remember this math. There is going to be math in this lesson. I apologize. He reigned for 11 years. Again, to reiterate, 608 to 498. Now Jeremiah 46 and 2 <clears throat> tells us that against Egypt, against the army of Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, which was by the river Euphrates, in Carchemish, remember that name, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, smote in the fourth year of Jehoiakim. The fourth year of Jehoiakim was 605, 608, 607, 606, 605. So the Bible tells us that in 605 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar defeated the Egyptians at Carchemish. Okay? Can we prove that? Well, we can corroborate it. This is a section from the Assyrian and Babylonian Chronicles. There are about 12 of them. They call them ABC, and they're numbered ABC 1, ABC 2. In ABC 5, the first section there, starting in, I guess you could call it verse 1, in the 21st year of the king of Akkad. Now, Akkad is what the Babylonians called themselves. Okay, King of Akkad, his name was Nab Nabopolassar, stayed in his own land, and Nebuchadnezzar, his eldest son, the crown prince, mustered the Babylonian army and took command of his troops, and he marched to Carchemish. 605 B.C., just like the Bible says, which is on the bank of the Euphrates. He crossed the river to go to the Egyptian army, which lay in Carchemish. They fought with each other, and the Egyptian army withdrew before him, and he accomplished their defeat, and he beat them to non-existence. As for the rest of the Egyptian army, and it goes on that not a single man made it back to Egypt. Now, Carchemish was well north of Jerusalem. Carchemish was not a small city, and this was not a small feat to defeat Egypt there. But again, the Bible, what the Bible said happened, happened. The Babylonians, they, were, they praised themselves for their defeat of Egypt at this town, and they recorded it, perfectly corroborated with the Bible. Now this Babylonian Chronicles obviously was not um, in English. It was probably written in cuneiform and translated somewhere in the 19, early 1900s to 1930s. Again, back to Jehoiakim. Okay, so after Babylon, this is kind of a story about Judea. After Babylon defeated Egypt at Carchemish, Jehoiakim changed his allegiances. Jehoiakim was, was I guess for, for lack of a better word, a coward as a king. With Judah not being a very military nation and Jerusalem not being a, you know, military, militarily sound, he just wanted to protect his people, and so he paid tribute to the strongest power. At one point, Egypt was, and then Egypt lost, and so he converted his allegiance to Babylon. 2 Kings 24, verse 1, In his days, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up, and Jehoiakim became his servant three years and then he turned and rebelled against him. Now remember, we have this ongoing uh, years, so those three years are going to come into play. So his service to Babylon lasted for three years, from 605, and then by the time the, the word got to, to king, the king of Judah, he said, okay, we're going to start paying tribute to Babylon now, because they're the stronger power. So from 604 to 602, and then we see that he rebelled against them, and he turned back. Well, Why? Why, if you're paying tribute to the stronger power, would you stop and go back to Egypt? Well, the Babylonian Chronicles, the Bible doesn't really say why, but the Babylonian Chronicles give us a clue. And let's look at that. 
There we go. In the same part of the Babylonian Chronicles, second section, starting in, if you want to call it, verse 5, in the fourth year, this is the fourth year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, which is 601 B.C., three years later, the king of Akkad mustered his army and marched to the Hadi land. The Hadi land is what they call the area of Palestine around Jerusalem. He took the lead of his army and he marched to Egypt. The king of Egypt heard it and mustered his army. In open battle, they smote the breast of each other and inflicted great havoc on each other. And the king of Akkad turned back with his troops and returned to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar went to Egypt to invade. They went to wipe them out. And they lost. They failed. So Babylon, in the face of their defeat, marched back home. And here you have Jehoiakim now. Egypt is the stronger power. And so Jehoiakim started paying Egypt to them. Not long after this, we see that Jehoiakim was killed. And in the Bible, it tells us many, many different races of people that came to attack. They were sent by God to avenge for what Manasseh had done. We know Manasseh was an evil king. So was Jehoiakim, who followed in his stead. After Jehoiakim, his son, Jeconiah, began his reign. Now he's called, I guess, three different things in the Bible. Jeconiah, Coniah, or Jehoiachin. And that was the name, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin. That was the name that the Babylonians gave him. He was a descendant of David through the line of Solomon. So the, that line that, that was the king of Judah at that time. He was the last let me, let me say this, and then I'll say it again. He was the last Davidic king of Judah. So of all the kings of Judah that were from the line of David, he was the last one. He did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. So just like his father, his grandfather, his great-grandfather before him, they did not follow God. And he was cursed for it. This was the, the, less, the scripture that we just read before. This man, Coniah, that's his name, a despised, broken idol. And then on to the verse 30. Write ye this man childless. Now, he had already had children by this point, but there's no record that he had any more after this curse. Write this man childless, a man that shall not prosper in his days, for no man of his seed shall prosper, sitting upon the throne of David and ruling any more in Judah. So Jeconiah, the cursed king, was not to have any descendants to rule in Judah. And we know that that is... That is true. Jeconiah was 18 when he started to reign. He reigned for three months and ten days. It's not very far. Because of the rebellion from Babylon, it's not that long, excuse me. Because of the rebellion from Babylon that his father instituted, Babylon decided to come and take what they thought was rightfully theirs. And this is what we all know as the first siege of Jerusalem, Nebuchadnezzar's first uh, attack. It wasn't much of a siege because Jeconiah was a coward too and he gave up. He immediately surrendered when they showed up. But 2 Chronicles 36 and 10, when the year was expired, I want you to take note of that, of that phrase. When the year was expired, King Nebuchadnezzar sent and brought him to Babylon with the goodly vessels of the house of the Lord and made Zedekiah his brother king over Judah and Jerusalem. The him there is Jeconiah. So he came to Jerusalem and he kidnapped, or he, Jeconiah surrendered, and not just, not just Jeconiah, but his wives, his princes, we'll get to that, and several of the mighty men. So all of the high stature, high, uh, upper caste of people took back to Babylon. Now again, that phrase, when the year was expired. So the last month in the Jewish calendar is Adar. 
It's the 12th month. And they actually got their names, or they took their names, from the Babylonian cal calendar, which was also a lunar calendar. So it was very much the same. Um, the same 12 months, and then every couple of years they would have a 13th month to make up for the days, excuse me, that they missed. But they called the 12th month a Daru, last month of the year. So again, a question. What evidence do we have that Jeconiah was captured at the end of the year? What evidence do we have that Nebuchadnezzar appointed somebody? Basically, how can we prove what the Bible says? Well, again, the Babylonian Chronicles tell us exactly the same thing. Again, in ABC 5, in the second section, starting in, if you want to call it, verse 11, in the eighth year of Nebuchadnezzar, which was about 597, in the month of Kislev, the ninth month, the king of Akkad mustered his troops and marched to the Hadiland. He besieged the city of Judah, and on the second day of the month of Adaru, he seized the city and captured the king. He appointed there a king of his own choice and received its heavy tribute and sent to Babylon. Second of Adar, as the year expired in the last month of the year. Now this heavy tribute, in, in this invasion of Jerusalem, they went into the temple and they got everything. All of the gold, all of the expensive items, and they took it back to Babylon as the missing tribute. Uh, now it's, it's the second siege where they actually destroyed the temple. But in this one, they didn't destroy it. They just took what they thought was rightfully theirs. But again, the biblical record is perfectly supported. Jeconiah's reign ended on to Adar, or Adar II, 597 B.C. And here's where I, where I commented about the princes. 2 Kings 24, starting in verse 10, or I guess verse 12. Jehoiachin, the king of Judah, went out to the king of Babylon. He went out. And it wasn't a fight. He just gave himself up. He and his mother and his servants and his princes and his officers and the king of Babylon took him in the eighth year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. Now look what it says in the Babylonian Chronicles, verse 11. In the eighth year of Nebuchadnezzar, 597, perfectly corroborates with 2 Kings 24, the eighth year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. Speaking more on Jeconiah, <clears throat> 2 Kings 25 tells us that he was released the 37th year of captivity, on the 27th day of the 12th month. And so he was in captivity from 2nd Adar, 597, to 27th Adar, 561. 37 years. So how can we prove that? Well, all we would really have to do is prove that Jeconiah was in Babylon during that period, right? Well, this is from a Wikipedia article. Sorry to have to quote the internet. We know things can be weird. But it's not actually quoting the Bible. It's quoting the findings of this man, Robert Koldui, in 1899 through 1917. So for that 18, 19-year period, he was doing archaeological digs at the site of Babylon. And he found, let me just read this here, he discovered a royal archive room of King Nebuchadnezzar near the Ishtar Gate. It contained tablets dating to 595 to 570 B.C., so that's two years before he got there and nine years after he got there. So this is the time range of, the, of these archaeological findings, and within that time range is when Jeconiah would have been in Babylon, if the Bible is correct. So four of these tablets list rations <clears throat> of oil and barley given to various individuals, including King Jehoiachin. 
by Nebuchadnezzar from the royal storehouses, dating five years after Jehoiachin was taken captive. So one tablet reads, 10 selah of oil to the king of Judah. And this word here, if you can't, can't see it, it's Y-A-U-K-I-N. That's how the Babylonians spelled, or at least the scribe who wrote this, spelled Jehoiachin. And two and a half selah of oil to the offspring of Judah's king, because remember, he brought his princes, his sons, his wife, everyone. And then another tablet, um, skip through the first part and down, down to the last, 10 selah to Laku'u Kinu, not, who sure, not sure who that one is referencing, the son of Judah's king. So again, the Bible says that Jeconiah and all of his family and all of his, his men were taken and captured to Babylon. And here we have completely separate sources telling us the same thing. This is the Ishtar Gate. Let me, let me go back one. There you can see this. The second line discovered a royal archive room of King Nebuchadnezzar near the Ishtar Gate. The Ishtar Gate was a very important piece of ancient Babylon. It was the largest gate, and it faced north. Ishtar was the name of one of their goddesses. Um, but it, it had this large processional way with towers on either side. Now, uh, Herodias, or that may be the wrong name, but uh, one of the, the, the writers from back then, he claimed that Babylon had, had walls 300 feet high. Well, most people think that was an exaggeration. Most, all of the scholars pretty much conclude that they were about 75 feet high, which is still significant. The more significant part, that they were just as wide as they were tall. The, it has been said that a four-horse chariot could completely turn around on the top of the wall. That was one of the comments made by some of those ancient writers. So the walls were very intimidating, and they were about 14 miles long, if you take what they say, so all the way around the city. 14 miles long, 75 feet high, 75 feet wide, give or take. And this was 500 years before the birth of Christ, give or take, 600 years. So this is a picture of a scale model in the, the Museum of Pergamon. It's in uh, Berlin, Germany right now. I'm not sure if, if the display is still there, but this is a picture of it. As you can see, the processional way, you walk through the Ishtar Gate, and then you actually stepped down into the city. Uh, militarily, that was quite brilliant. Inside the Ishtar Gate, there were pillars, there were gates. There were seven gates that they would close. So a fighting army who came through this gate would have to expend a lot of lives, so to speak, to get in. This is a reproduction of the front of the Ishtar Gate. I want you to look at the scale. Look at the man standing right here at the bottom. Let's say he's six foot tall, give or take. That's pretty big. And this blue gate was most likely lapis lazuli, which is a rock. They can grind it up and they can smear it over the brick, paint it. And as you can see, the, the little horses and the little dragons, um, that was a depiction of the god Mar Marduk, who was the main, the main god, if you want to say, of the Babylons. This is what's left right now. That is where the Ishtar Gate was, facing north. And I want you to take a note of the shape of this, this place. Now, to get an idea of the scale, this is a car. So this is obviously an overhead satellite picture. Now, this wasn't just here. This was actually Saddam Hussein, when he was in power, began a project to restore the ancient city of Babylon. This is as far as he got. 
Now this area here, I, when I was looking at, at this and trying to line it up with some of the satellite, some of the artist depictions, I couldn't figure out exactly where this fit in. Or, sorry, let me, let me go through this. So this, right here, is a picture taken from about the 1930s, give or take. Once you take note of this little pillar that the guy is standing next to, the shape of it, because you'll see it again. But that is actually a picture. So if I was standing here looking through it, I would be looking to the south. So this is kind of a picture taken uh, from the northwest looking at it. This is after some renovation. This was taken uh, probably in the mid-90s, give or take, but you can see this little pillar right here. Same shape. This picture, the older picture, became a pretty famous one for the, Babylon for the Iraqis, for Saddam Hussein, and was part of the inspiration for him wanting to rebuild it. And this was taken after some renovation was done. You can see the stairs here as you step down into the city. Now, this was just the foundation. The, this, was a, this, this didn't include the arch that came over it. Here is one artist's rendition of the city of Babylon. And at this time, at this point, the Euphrates River actually moved through the city. It doesn't do that anymore. They had a hydroelectric power plant that kind of diverted it a little further to the west. We'll see that in a little bit. But this was an artist's rendition. And again, I told you I was trying to place puzzle piece that area in. Well, it's right there. So I want you to think of the scale of this city. Remember how small that car was compared to how big that section was? And look at how small that section is compared to how big the city of Babylon was. Here's another rendition, as you can see here, the Ishtar Gate, and there's that little piece. Now, this little wooden room right here, it is believed that that was the throne room of Nebuchadnezzar. It is believed that that is the room where the hand wrote on the wall. You can go there if you want, if you believe what they say, that that was the room, but you can go there and you can look and look at that historical place. Here's a, a black and white map, and again, just to show the scale, I'll go through this quick. But the red square there, there's the palace. Here's an overview picture, satellite picture from all of it. Again, look how small that red part is. If you're curious, the, the, the circular item there with the, the palace, and I'm up, that was Saddam Hussein's summer palace that he built for himself. But anyway, so you can see that river up in the upper right corner that kind of goes around. And hopefully this shows up, but I overlaid that black and white map with this one. So you can see how big the city of Babylon was. And you can see the Euphrates River is now diverted over, but it used to go through the city. There were canals, there were towers, and everything. So why am I talking about this? Why are we looking at the city of Babylon? Because it's important to prove that Jeconiah was a real person and to prove that the Bible is correct in what they say about him, because just like any logical argument, if you can have a proof, it strengthens your argument. So again, one of the major contradictions that atheists raise is in the genealogy of Christ. Now, Jeconiah is a part of the genealogy of Christ. According to Matthew 1, Jeconiah is mentioned in verse 11. He was a descendant of David from Solomon, we knew that, and he was a direct ancestor of Joseph. Now, believe it or not, there are still people that argue against the miraculous birth, the virgin birth. And they argue that Joseph was the father of Jesus. There's a, actually a very large following in the atheistic. Well, there are atheists that are Bible experts. 
know more about it than probably you or I because they study it so that they can discount it. They don't believe that, that there was a, a miracle at all. They believe that Joseph is the father of Jesus. Well, that couldn't be because Joseph was of the line of Jeconiah, and Jeconiah was cursed. He could not, Joseph could not have been the father of Jesus because we know that Jesus was to sit on the throne of Judah. According to Luke 3, verse 31 says that David and then Nathan, so not David through Solomon, but David through Nathan, is the line through which Christ's blood proceeds. So how do we reconcile the two? Well, there's a couple of theories for how we can do that. Sorry, there's a lot of information on this slide. I'll try to sum most of it up. The first theory states that Luke is actually the genealogy of Mary. Um, there are some, some things in the Greek that may not speak to that, um, but overall it's kind of the easiest explanation. I don't really want to stand up and, and proclaim that, but it is one theory. According to Hebrew custom, we know that women were not taken very highly. They weren't included in a lot of the laws and a lot of the records um, and a lot of the genealogies unless there was a significant reason to do so. And so one of the ideas is that Mary's name was not included, but instead her husband. And as, as Luke 3 states, the father, she was the, she was the daughter of Heli. Of course, it mentions that Joseph was, was the son of Heli. Now, this theory kind of supports a lot of other things. It supports the bloodline of Jesus, that Jesus' bloodline would have come from David and not from Jeconiah. And it also string, string, strengthens the argument for Jesus not being the biological father, strengthens the argument for the virgin birth. People still argue against that. Now, the second theory states, which is really just as legitimate, is the idea of a Levirate marriage. If you guys remember the story of Ruth and Boaz, if a husband died and did not have any children, then it was res responsibility of one of the next of kin to come and marry the wife and carry on the, the, the seed. So that's a possibility. And if it was a possibility, then we assume that Jacob, the son of Methan, as given in Matthew, was his biological father. And then his legal father through the Levirate marriage would have been Heli. Again, a theory, but perfectly, both of them corroborate all of the things that the Bible says. Remember, the first rule of interpreting the Bible, if your interpretation conflicts with something else in the Bible, your interpretation is wrong. Both of these fit. Both of them could be equally true. It doesn't really matter which one is true, but the point is there is no contradiction between the two. There are several different ex explanations for why. So why Jeconiah? Well, in this lesson, we've covered a lot of ground. We reached all the way back to the Old Testament, talked about two evil kings, two people that, that were despised by God and were punished for it. The whole co uh, country of Judah was punished for it. We used some proof, some evidence, some archaeological evidence from an unrelated source because, you know, scientists say, well, their biggest problem is, is the, the proof, or, or what we say is the proof for the Bible is the Bible. You know, if I told you I could dunk a basketball, would you believe me? Well, maybe if you saw me do it, I can't, you won't. But I am not a proof for myself if I just say it. So they, they argue that the Bible is not a proof for itself. So it is on us, Christians, to prove the Bible. And we can do that without using the Bible. We can do that using historical references that prove that 
what the Bible said happened. The more that we can do that, the more that we can strengthen the argument that the Bible is what it says it is. I think it's important for us to be able to, to, to know these things. You know, if you think of the, the faith of Abraham, the faith of Noah, and the faith of Job, it was a different kind of faith because they knew that God existed. They talked with him. They saw his miracles there in front of them. It was a different kind of faith. We don't have access to that right now, but we do have access to this, to the book of all the things that God did. And the more that we can prove to ourselves that it is true, the stronger our faith will be. It turns into knowledge, not belief and not hope. It turns into knowledge that we know the Bible is what it says it is. And I hope that during this lesson, we got to that point, at least a small portion. Now, there are, I could stand up here for hours and talk about different archaeological findings that support the Bible. There are hundreds, and people still discount. You know, our faith comes by hearing, hearing the Word of God, and again, learning it, studying it, and not just studying it, studying the words and, and reading them and going, okay, I've read that, I'm done but devouring it, to learn it as if to teach, because that's our job, is to teach other people. Learn the Bible as if to teach someone else. The plan of salvation is quite easy. The first step, again, hearing the word, believing it. Believing that Jesus is the Son of God, and confessing that before men. That is what we are told to do. Here in a moment, we're going to sing a song of invitation. If there's anyone in the audience who maybe lacks the faith, maybe you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, maybe you believe that the Bible is the Word of God, but there's something that's holding you back, I encourage you to put that away because we can know. There's, there's doubt in, in, in a believer's mind. But we can put that doubt away, and we can make Jesus your Father today. The Song of Invitation we ask that you would come forward if you have the need. That If you have the need to come back to Jesus, if you've already been a child, or if you have the need to come to him for the first time, this room is full of people who would be happy and joyous at the occasion for one person coming back or for one person coming into the fold for the first time. If you are subject to the invitation today, please come forward as we stand and sing.